Hi, I'm Molly Moran, and this is the Table Wine Podcast. I am joined, as always, by my esteemed co-host, Andy Stoiber. And today, hello, hello. Hi. Today, we have a special guest, Miss Pippa Moran. Whoa, whoa, wee whoa. <laughs> Hi, Andy. Pippa. Hello, Pippa. What's up? Nothing, really. It's, it is a Thursday in October, and you're not at school? My parents had parent-teacher conferences, so I get the day off, and then I get tomorrow off. So I have Ooh. a big four-day weekend, which is fun. Oh, that's great. What Big plans for a four-day weekend? I don't really know. Not, not much. Just hanging out and reading. That's and good. Watching so, TV. So. Sounds like you have a good grasp on it. Four-day weekends are a big deal. Yeah. Are you excited for Halloween? Yes, I'm so excited for Halloween. Are you going in a costume? Yes. So this year I'm going to go as Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. And Amazing. Just yesterday I got my dress and I have my ruby slippers and I look exactly like Dorothy. And it's kind of weird. That sounds great. Well... This was delightful, Pippa. So glad to have you today. Bye. Bye. Oh, my God. If you ever feel sick one week, I think Pippa could just sub in. She could sub in. And (laughs) seeing her grown up between before my eyes. (laughs) What a cogent conversation partner. (laughs) Rather than ask you how you are, because Mm -hmm. it's still fall and it's still the pandemic and not that much has changed. Tell me something delicious that you've eaten recently yes this is the question i wanted you to ask because i'm like we love food we do we, we really haven't talked talk about, about it really food. enough no and so last night i made bolognese a eh? bolognese bolognese mm-hmm. but with beyond meat because i'm a vegetarian and so this has been a recent innovation in my life made possible by like the whole beyond impossible meat thing i never had bolognese until a few months ago when i first made it it's so good. I like didn't realize how good. How it satisfying could be. bolognese how, is. Yeah, so satisfying. So I made that last night, and it's just the best. I mean, it like cooks for. It takes a couple hours, and it like simmers on a low setting for an over an hour, and it's just like, I don't know. That time you can just imagine all the the flavors coalescing, and it's beautiful. That's and amazing. So that was really tasty. But I was excited for that question. I don't <laughs> you were sending me those vibes. Like, talk to me about food. What about what about you? What are you excited about in food? Thanksgiving is coming, and I haven't completely wrapped my brain around my Thanksgiving guest list yet, which will then determine my menu a bit. So, TBD on Thanksgiving. Ooh, I'm like, I want an invitation to the Molly Moran Thanksgiving Spectacular. Maybe. This, I mean... You're a vegetarian. Does it ruin everything? No, not at all. <laughs> I am willing to meet people wherever they are with their dietary restrictions. <laughs> I like to think that I am a fine dining restaurant when it comes to that kind of stuff. Amazingly enough that you asked me what I have made recently and Thanksgiving and the vegan Thanksgiving guest, who, if you're listening, I love you. Your dietary restrictions, I don't love so much. But I made uh, a dish that I often make for Thanksgiving that is a warm farro salad with roasted butternut squash, roasted grapes, and kale. And the grapes, they're, it's that's the whole thing. Pippa loves it. She's like, can we have the grape farro thing? And I'm like, sure. So I just made it the other day. 
and I hadn't made it for like a year and it's so autumnal and delicious. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. That's all. Molly is a phenomenal cook. We did dinner that one time when you made that egg souffle. Oh, yeah. And wow, that is a that's a thing I like to make dish. Thanks. I need to learn how to make it. I never had anything like that. And I was like, wow. I like people to be impressed by it, but it's really not that hard. It's really, it's just whips and eggs. That's what they all say when they're good. It's time now for our aperitif, a little bit of fun knowledge to wet your palate. Feels like over the past few years, Aperol is just everywhere. And alongside it comes its friend Campari and then other aperitivos. Earlier this week, I tasted an Italian aperitivo that is not quite as sweet as Aperol, nor quite as aromatic and bitter as Campari. But similar to Campari, it has this really brilliant red color, and it led to a discussion of how these liqueurs used to be colored, and some of them still are. I don't know if you all know this already, but I thought it was just interesting knowledge to have. So these aperitivos are colored that brilliant red by a specific insect, the cochineal, the female cochineal, that is dried and crushed and it has this specific acid in it that is bright red. It's been used to color fabrics for thousands of years and it was originally one of a couple different types of insects that were used here in the Americas in 800 BC. When the Europeans came to South America, they discovered it and took it back to Europe with them in the mid-1500s. Up until pretty recently, Campari used cochineal to color it this brilliant red. And now there's this whole slew of new aperitivos that are coming in that are actually using it. That makes it not vegetarian and definitely makes it not vegan. And I don't know how much people know this or are paying attention to it. So I just thought that it would be fun to share that fact with you. You can feel safe. Campari and Aperol don't use that, and they haven't for quite a while. So enjoy a spritz with whichever aperitivo you like best. Cheers. And now it is time to pop the cork. Okay, Molly, what did you pick out for us today? We're drinking Riesling, everybody. It's going to be okay. It's a big bottle of Riesling from Brand. It's the name of the winery. And it is the classification of Riesling that is called fine herb, which is not quite as dry as cabinet, but not sweet either. So it just has a little bit of residual sugar. It just has a nice little bit of fruitiness to it. You're throwing out a lot of terms here. Cabinet. It's true. I am. <clears throat> Kitchen cabinets. Cabinet. K-A-B-I-N-E-T-T. He's, he's nodding at me. He knows the answer. He just wants me to talk about it. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Explain it. (laughs) Heckling from the crowd. The Germans, which probably comes as no surprise to anybody listening, have a very detailed classification system for their wines and the ripeness of the grapes when they pick them and the sweetness of the wines. When you see a German wine, there's a lot that can be told from a German wine label. In the case of the brand wine, though, I will say they are hip (laughs) <laughs> they know it, They know how to sell wine. It's not one of the German labels that has just a million words that you don't know what's going on. It's pretty. It says the name of their winery and that it has really pretty flowers on it. And it's a simple vintage grape and then this fine herb classification. We picked this wine for a couple of reasons. One, it's almost Thanksgiving. And Riesling, well, the holidays in general, a good... Back to my first, my first wine wow moment, I believe it was the holiday season. 
when I drank that glass of Riesling that turned me onto wine forever. So I think, yeah, Riesling, I think, shows up at holiday tables. If you're having folks over, there's a decent chance someone brings over a Riesling. Yeah, they go well with everything. Generally speaking, they have enough acidity to go with a lot of different foods. In the case of this wine, that little bit of sweetness there is just so food friendly. It really is great. Don't get scared, everybody. It's really delicious. Like I said, it's an, a liter bottle, so we're we're big fans of the big bottles. <laughs> love love a big bottle of wine, especially Riesling. And yeah, tasting this, it just like awakens my tongue. Like that little bit of sweetness does something that really dry wines just can't ever do. Like just it was like, oh yeah, like I just get my mouth waters a little bit. Like these involuntary responses that obviously happen when you're drinking anything, but like I get excited. I also get excited. Our visualization is just like happiness, like a kid on a trampoline. Like, I'm so happy. This is just so much joy. I was literally going to say bouncy house, like colorful, rubbery, bouncy things. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. We did a Riesling a couple episodes ago for Sam when when we did the Australian dry Riesling. And it's so amazing because this wine is completely different. This is a totally different beast. This is a little more candied grapefruit. A uh, l- tiny little bit of floralness, tiny little bit of minerals, and then all sorts of yummy fruit. I, but the, the mouthfeel, I think maybe that's the thing I connect across Rieslings. I think of a really, this still reminds me of that Australian Riesling in terms of mouthfeel to a certain degree. Yeah, because your mouth is awake now. <laughs> it's like ready for, it's ready for food. Oh, here's the question I had though for you as... Germans are really good at classifying things. Yes. If you want to get into Riesling or you realize, oh, I like some Riesling and not other Riesling, knowing which classification is a very helpful thing, right? Yes, for sure. Like knowing kind of what you're comfortable with. If you prefer drier wines in general, then start with Trocken, which means dry. These days, a lot of labels will say dry rather than Trocken or maybe even both because they really do want to kind of help you along. Or you can, you know, kind of move up the sweetness level and try something like fine herb. And that's really a beautiful, wide category. There, it's slightly loosey-goosey in terms of what qualifies as fine herb. And it's the place that you kind can get that just slightly off-dry style. So, yeah, for sure. You can just kind of like track what you like and go from there. So the other thing that I love about Riesling, this Riesling in particular, is that it's pretty low in alcohol. It's 10.5%. Fun fact, the sweeter a wine is, usually the lower in alcohol it is. So if you're ever looking at Riesling and you can't decipher all the German words, you can look at the ABV. And if it's in the single digits, then it's probably pretty sweet. And then if it's in the double digits, it's a little bit drier. So this is 10.5%. And Andy and I were talking about day drinking, particularly on Thanksgiving. And I think this wine is here for you for the whole day, you know? Oh, yeah. It comes in a liter. Uh, Perfect. Pop it open. Maybe around lunch. Maybe you get a second bottle and you drink it for four, five, six hours, glass after glass. It's 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 a workhorse for your day drinking. It is. Look at the job done. It's your it's your brunch into cooking into dinner. Right. And the sugar should maybe help you stay awake. Keep you fight off some of the sleepiness that alcohol breaks Maybe you started with a breakfast wine, which I suggest the Mein Klang, an orange wine, as breakfast wine. It's Andy's favorite breakfast wine. I really like that we have these classifications. 
someday. Maybe that'll be season five. We'll do a, <laughs> all of our, the different wines for different types today. Or just breakfast wine. A season. <laughs> Entire season devoted to breakfast wine? Drink this with pancakes. This with your chilaquiles. <laughs> Ooh, yum. It's going to be great. That, that'll be the margarita episode. <laughs> One of the other reasons that we picked this wine was that the movie that we're, we'll be talking about is The Secret of Santa Vittoria, which is based in Italy. And it is about the German occupation of Italy. So for our first wine, we're doing German. We'll talk about our second wine in just a moment when we talk about an Italian wine. So we did like that tie-in. Obviously, the movie is about the Nazi period, and it's not about the positive side of Germany. So I do like to talk about the good things in Germany, like these people and their organic wine. And von Boden is the importer, and they do a really lovely job of finding responsibly sourced wines in Germany and Austria. So I feel like turning the tide. It raises the point of we're in Wisconsin. We're a beer-dominated culture, and that's often tied to the German heritage because, and I think beer is the more common thought of alcohol in Germans, but they have great wine. And you can do wonderful wine tours there. So it's a cool highlight of maybe why the motivation behind, like, the German occupation of Italy and them wanting wine in this movie is because wine was a big part of German culture. I agree. <laughs> well said, sir. All right. Are we so ready we for no- wine number two? Yes. Wine number two. Another. So uh, in episode two. Can. Yeah. In episode two, we did canned wine and we're back to it. We are back to canned wine. But this is special canned wine. Is it special? Or. Well, it's carbonated canned wine. It is. You know, in that way. It is. So our movie is set in Emilia-Romagna, Italy. And the wine in that region of Italy is Lambrusco. That's what the region is known for. That's not the wine that is in our movie that we're going to discuss, but it is the wine of the region. And so I didn't feel like we could talk about a movie that's set in Emilia-Romagna without talking about Lambrusco. So here we are with a can of super delicious Lambrusco. Okay. Oh, there's my pouring in the background. I think this is my confession, is that like I never really drank much Lambrusco over the course of my tenure at Table Wine. It's okay. I did get, I think, other sparkling red wines from mm-hmm. Italy. But Lambrusco is unique, correct? <laughs> yeah. Or So Lambrusco yeah. is made from, there are a few different varietals that all start with the, the word Lambrusco. So it's not super important. I mean, you you could get really nerdy and learn the differences between the varietals of Lambrusco. But generally speaking, a Lambrusco is a sparkling red wine that varies in sweetness. They can be really, really dry and you'll get more tannin on them to pretty sweet. They definitely show the full spectrum. This one is on the off-dry side of things, so it is not totally bone dry, but it's not one of the sweeter Lambruscos. It's more for savory food, so it's more for charcuterie and pizza and those kinds of dishes rather than a sweet Lambrusco that would be good with chocolate or a cheese mm. course, like kind of more towards the almost the port side. This is not that. This is meant for daytime consumption. Back to our day drinking thing yeah no this is nine and a half percent like this is nine and a half percent alcohol it's in a can that's a glass and a half it is for sure like pizza wine 
if that's what it's intended for. Yeah. But it, it definitely has some sweetness to it. If you're, you know, used to drinking dry Italian red wine, it'll be a surprise. Yeah, but like I have a customer who <laughs> oh, yeah. he like really, really wants dry reds. And then he asked me to get this. And I was like, sure, I can get this for you. Have you had it? I was like, I like this wine a lot. But I was kind of surprised by his interest in this wine. What I love about Lambrusco is that it is unabashedly fruity. Mm-hmm. There's just no... It's a hedonistic. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's just no shame. Like it tastes like plums and blackberries and blueberries and pomegranate. And it just is all the things. Yeah. Yeah. This I never drank wine coolers, but I imagine. Oh, they're much cousin. sweeter than this. They're so <laughs> much sweeter than this. Like, I, see, I never drank wine coolers, but this would be, I mean, it makes sense that this comes in a can because it is a yeah. delightful canned beverage that I could see you drinking in limousines <laughs> like, <you> know, the <laughs> bachelor party bachelor oh party bachelorette we, party for sure just pop in these like, I also feel would... like this is a concerts on the square wine for those of you who oh, live in yeah. Madison where the symphony plays outside the Capitol and you go and picnic and stuff like this is just a cheese and bread if you're a meat eater some charcuterie and pop up in this can and it's just a totally delightful evening for sure this is this could replace white claw <laughs> just like the, again yeah. the canned alcoholic beverages that are not beer i'm like oh man imagine the market for this yeah and like actually speaking of thanksgiving i mean i don't think you necessarily want to serve cans at thanksgiving because those that doesn't really make sense in terms of the thing unless you want to be very hygienic right people oh yeah with groups that are still uncomfortable with how you're sharing yeah. Glassware or anything. It's true. Could be perfect. But Lambrusco and Thanksgiving it would be a super fun, unexpected thing to pair because it does have these kind of like, particularly this one has these tartar fruit yeah. notes. Oh, yeah. Right? Like like I said, that pomegranate kind of thing or the cranberry kind of thing, it would be super tasty with Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. A perfect Thanksgiving. Yeah. Again, I'm like wondering what hour of the day I'd want to drink this. Yeah. When we're having our cheese. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. Like prior to the turkey coming out of the oven. Mm-hmm. Right? Like you're, we're all just kind of chilling, hanging out. I feel like a glass yeah. of Lambrusco and some cheese would be fantastic. This would be fun to have with cranberry sauce. I would like to try mm. this with cranberry sauce and see how those pair. Great. Because it seems like a nice complimentary thing going on. Okay. Clarifying question. And, you know, this is my ignorance. Are all sparkling red wines from Italy considered Lambruscos? No. They are not. Good question. So there are sparkling red wines from various places in Italy. It's not a super common style. There's not a Mm -hmm. lot of it being made in other places. But Lambrusco has to come from Emilia Romagna. And it has to be made from a select group of Lambrusco grapes. So That's what I wanted to hear. I was just making sure. Yes, you are right. Is that the knowledge you needed? Yeah, that's okay. the knowledge I needed. Okay. This is delicious. I'm glad. Yay. This is very fun. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about wine is that even when you drink a ton of different things, it's always something else that, I mean, new wines are being put out every year. I mean, every year, wines taste different too. And so this is very fun. Yeah, I, like. I just tasted wines earlier today. I tasted wines with a small importer of Portuguese wines, and they had some single varietal wines of varietals that I've only had in blends before 
or they had mm. an unoaked Cabernet Sauvignon that has six years of age on it. Like that didn't taste like anything I've ever had before. It's super cool. Like that's what's really fun about wine. Yeah. There's, okay. There's I think this wine, this Lambrusco, if you like sangria, I think this would be a very nice fit. <laughs> I don't know about all canned sangrias out there, but I can't imagine they're all made of, you know, natural <laughs> things. I don't think so. I feel like... Which I don't... I feel I like your perception of sweetness, though, is different than mine, because I feel like you're, like, really, like, this is, like... Well, it has more sweetness than I expected, I guess. Okay. Like... It's not crazy sweet, but it's the fruitiness too, right? Where I think if you like, like if you just like fruity juice, this is it. And I'm, just, I feel like I've had sangria that's not been far off from this. Okay. Or maybe I just haven't had sangria in a long time. <laughs> but I'm just trying to find avenues in for folks that are like, mm, will I like Lambrusco? And maybe the sangria thing's a turnoff to some folks. That's so see, that's the only thing that I that. yeah, that's the only thing I want to be careful about is that I think. Lambrusco is an easy place for a lot of sangria people. But hey, people who think sangria is too sweet, this particular Lambrusco, check it out. Yes. I think this is a good way to like move toward drier things. The customer who asked me to get this for him, like really only wants to drink Nebbiolo and Dolcetto. <sighs> like he wants like earthy Piedmontese reds. And he liked this. So that's my point. It's just that this one is not, you know, oh, yeah. super sweet. That's oh, all. yeah. I think avenues from sweetness to drier, it's a nice benchmark. If you liked sangria and you want something drier toward more regular wine. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah. Dry wines. wines. Like it's a good, you know, scaffolding into, which I think happens when people who are really into Moscato, for example, not, and we love Moscato. I remember customers that are like, they want to drink not just Moscato. And it's like, where are the bridge wines? I think this is a good bridge wine. Am yes, I? I think that's great. You can disagree. I'm. <laughs> I'm with you. I, th I think. That's okay. Good. Good. And now it's time to decant. It's time for us to talk about our subject in a little more detail and give it room to breathe. So this week we watched *The Secret of Santa Vittoria*, which is a movie from 1969. Andy, tell us a little bit about the movie. Italians defending their wine from Nazis. That, to me, is the little byline. Contextually, it's like after Mussolini has fallen. P.S. I did not realize how much time was between Mussolini losing power and the end of World War II. It was 1943. So there was still like a real chunk of time there. That is. Which I, I, didn't, mean, I did not know about. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, how does this movie, how does this all work? It is about Nazis coming to Italy, this town, to take all their wine and the town rallying together to hide their wine from the Nazis so they can keep as much of their wine as they feasibly can. So they have more than a million bottles of wine that they're trying to hide. And it comes out pretty late in the movie that they make wine for the Cinzano company. And Cinzano is a real brand of vermouth. So... With vermouth, it does actually qualify as a fortified wine, but it is a subsection called aromatized wine. So in Cinzano or any sweet vermouth, you would start with a base of red wine and then add things to it and fortify it. So this town, Santa Vittoria, is the town that is responsible for making the base red wine for vermouth. 
they don't explain that, I don't think, in very clear detail. And it was well, I think it was at the two hour mark where you finally realized like why they had so much wine. Because there was definitely this question mark of like, why do you have a million bottles of the same wine? <laughs> and why is the whole town so tied to this specific wine? That was definitely not clear until late in the movie. No, I mean, I have a lot of things that weren't clear for me. Mostly around like, the romance is going on. <laughs> it was beautiful. Like, I thought the scenery was really cool. And it opens up with fun imagery of old men drinking wine. Um, just like a very Italian vibe. I was interested to learn the director. Stanley he, Kramer. Yeah, did the Mad, 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 Mad World movie. and Oh, that um, makes so much sense. My family is addicted to that movie. I have seen that movie. Oh, boy. I don't even know how many times. Interesting. I, I just I've, I've only seen Rat Race, and I love Rat Race. Oh, it's a Mad 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 World. Version. Actually, has a lot in common with this movie, where it goes on too long. It's <laughs> probably an hour too long, but there are some like cool nuggets, and there's like some cool shots. Like the cinematography is kind of interesting in mm -hmm. both of these. And I one thing that struck me like right away when we were watching it was that this is not how movies are made anymore. That if this movie were made now, it would just be a green screen of some you know in nondescript italian town but this was so very clearly filmed on location and early in the movie they have a scene where this old guy gets drunk and he climbs up the water tower and then he's like up there and a young guy climbs up to try to get him to come down and it was very clear that they actually were up there with the camera. Like there was no way that there was anything happening other than them being up that high. And it was really cool. Like you get to see all of the landscape and it was, it was really beautiful. I think that it made me want to go back to Italy. Uh, yeah. No, I, I want to go to Italy. Yeah. I do love the, like the town square where it's like this beautiful stone building surrounding the square that i was like oh italy seems wonderful so i i appreciated this movie just as like a historical like oh yeah old movies were beautiful and done in a different way but slowly they're done slowly i also watched it while doing other things because it's yeah. pretty slow and yeah. there were some things early on full disclosure early on in this movie I started watching it before Andy did and I texted him and I said, there's some problematic stuff in this movie and I'm not really sure we want to talk about it, the movie entirely, because pretty early on, a character tells the main character played by Anthony Quinn that he should punch his wife in the mouth to get her to stop talking. And there are a number of references to domestic abuse and there's some coerced sex. I won't necessarily say that it is completely non-consensual, but Let's just be mm -hmm. clear. A Nazi has sex with an Italian woman. So I don't really think that we can call that as consensual sex. So there are definitely problems with this movie. And I don't necessarily think that you all should go out and watch it. <laughs> no, but <laughs> I feel like it exists because it is in significance to film history. And it, I, it I won the Golden go Globe. Uh, the year, oh, it did? Yeah, it won the Golden Globe for comedy the year that it came out. Oh, my God. I know. Isn't that amazing? For comedy? Yeah. <laughs> I uh, don't know. Isn't that amazing? Like, Here are bizarre. the two things that I really l did like about it. One that's like actually in the movie and one that kind of like my thoughts spun out from. So they have these million bottles and they need to try to hide them. They decide that they're not going to hide all of them because then the Germans will know 
that they're hiding them. Like they're like, we're going to leave some out so the Germans can find those. And we think, you know, we'll kind of like outsmart the Germans. And at first they have just carts. Everybody's trying to get some of the wine out of the, the cave and move it. And it's ca- total chaos. And then this guy who had been in the army says like, stop, this is not how this is going to work. Here's how it's going to work. And he gets this like assembly line going. And so then the whole town just like lines up hand to hand. And it was like hands across America. I know that was like 10 years before you were born, Andy, but <laughs> it gets. Yeah, I don't know that, but I know. You're... You know what I'm talking Do you know what I'm talking about? I know the scene. I don't know what hands across America is. Oh my God. When I was in first grade, I, I have no idea what it was for. I, maybe it was for raising money for kids in Africa, but the idea was to build a human chain across the United States. And so you, there were designated spots and you went and you held hands and it was supposed to be this, you know, you made a, a whole oh chain of people across America. Anyway, for those oh. of you my age or older, you know what I'm talking about. And th- so the scene is like that and they're like passing bottles and it's really cool. Like I, I yeah. liked that a lot. I thought it was really cool, which then tied into the larger p- picture thing that I did really appreciate, which was, the culture of European towns around wine, how it is so essential to their identity. Like they are the town of the Cinzano wine company, or they're the town that makes Lacrima, or they're the town that grows Shoy Reba, or they're the town that whatever, right? Like that they, yep. that is who they are as a people. Like in this movie, Nobody's willing to sell out each other and tell the Nazis where the wine is because they're like, it's about the wine. Like I'd risk my life for the town's wine. And I think that's something that you don't see. Definitely not in America, but I just, I do think that it is still true today about European wine culture. Agreed. I thought that was one of the more insightful parts of this movie or like statements of this movie was how important wine is to a community's identity, survival, you know, from what I know about Italian exports, isn't it like wine and cheese are the two biggest parts of their GDP? This movie hits home hard about people putting their lives on the line to save the wine. A couple of years ago, I went to a town in Italy where I was both on vacation and doing some work. But the town is in a region, La Marche, which is not really like the tourist area of Italy. So I, I've not ever been to Tuscany, but my understanding is like, if I had gone to Tuscany, everybody would have spoken English. Everybody would have expected, you know, 13 Americans to show up for lunch. Like that would have been normal. But instead we were in this town called Pergola where they were like, why are there 13 Americans <laughs> staying at the house on the hill? You know, and they were so excited and so generous. And when we visited wineries there, it was very clear that like they don't get American visitors all the time. And then I said that, that I owned a wine shop and that I was in the industry. And then it was like, but no one ever comes and sees our grapes. So um, I can speak to these smaller towns that really is super important to them. What I was excited to talk about with you regarding this film is the centrality of wine in history. And mm-hmm. I feel like you know more about wine in history Many people I know who are really into wine and have devoted some of their life to it, I feel like talk about the importance of wine throughout history or how it is a way of looking at history and understanding things is that wine kind of comes up time and time again across big events. And so this movie was like an instance of how wine is tied into a large historical event. 
and obviously it's not something that a movie's made about it, but I think there's many times across history, all like, you know, large thousands of years of history that you can point to wine being implicated in interesting history. So Molly. <laughs> I, <laughs> so Molly, give us wine history. Yeah, well, I was just thinking like how did you feel? Like, did this make you think of any other wine history? Well, I mean, when it comes to World War II, there are so many stories of this where the champagne houses were, you know, wiped clean of any champagne that they had. And so they hid the wine. I believe that it was Veuve Clicquot where they hid wine. They built a false wall and they hid all of this champagne, similar to this movie where they let the Germans find some of the wine. Because if you show up at a champagne house and they say, oh, we have no wine, Clearly, you know they're lying. But if they mm-hmm. if you show up and they give you some wine, then maybe you either don't think they're lying or you um, know they're lying and you don't care because you at least got some something from it. So there mm-hmm. are stories of that throughout World War II, which I think is really interesting. And you know, I could go on about like the history of Alsace, right, and like the fact that it ha- changes hands between the Germans and the French, and that changes what kinds of grapes grow there and what style of wine they grow and that it's more Germanic, but it's actually French and, you know, that kind of thing. I think just if you just take World War II, it's really fascinating. And then if you expand it, obviously wine plays such a huge role in so much of history that I think it is a way for people to get into wine, I think. Like people who are coming to wine not from the food side of things, not from the restaurant side of things. Lots of history geeks like wine like wine for that reason, I think. Yeah, I, I think it was really interesting seeing this part of military conquest being, okay, we need to make sure there's enough wine for our new power, or for, as yeah. a, for the troops, whatever, but like Germans being like, okay, we want to make sure we have stockpiles of wine that we are conquering and then taking back to Germany. It seems like a small detail in the grand scheme, but also obviously extremely consequential. I mean, the dynamic between Italy and Germany is something that, I haven't thought much about, but thinking of both of them as Axis powers. And so then here you have Germans not attacking the Italians, but acting as a enemy type force to these people. It paints Italians, I think, you know, as not as evil as Germans. (laughs) I haven't done a lot of reading about the Italian side of World War II And I did study German history quite a bit in college. And it is really interesting to think of Italy as like the lesser Axis power. Were they as powerful as the Germans? I don't think so. You know, like I just think about the English patient is also set in Italy. And it's also this same kind of thing of the Germans are doing all of this. You know, there's never a talk of like, it's the Italians who are doing this. It's kind of like the Italians are going along with it. Yeah, so. I don't know n- nearly enough about no, Italian really history and culture during no. that time. And I, I've always known so little about Mussolini, and I feel like I should learn more. Yeah. Um, you know, you so were saying, though, like me. about the Germans wanting to take back the wine, and I was thinking about in the first episode where we were talking about bottle shock, and we were talking about the equivalency that they make in that movie about wine being like fine art, and mm-hmm. that wine to the Germans was treated as such. It was just, you know, like we're going to go into a country and we're going to steal all their art and we're going to steal all their valuable goods. And part of the valuable goods is the wine. Wars used like these large conquests of empire building where I think wine becomes a thing. Like, oh, we want to have good wine in our new empire. Let's make sure we are conquering 
that area and these people. And the one other thing. Yeah. Or do you have something? No, you go ahead. Mine is a tangent. Or oh. my, like, it may, this is what I was thinking about watching this movie. Knowing it's time in history of 1969. Also, the fact that, you know, it's Germans and Italians taking place in Italy and everyone's speaking English that I felt or I, and I, and I have my own interests and I think many of us have been brushing up on race racialization and racism literature and thinking how Italians as like an ethnic group were racialized as like non-white and this movie seems to you know show some of that where it feels like the Italians are I and because they're in Italy, so it's a different, you know, thing. But the, because they're speaking English, I got the sense of like, oh, yeah, how Italians were racialized as non-white. There is cultural depictions and ways of their being that I feel like make them, for an American audience, seem different. Where you're like, oh, this is not a non this is a non-white, non-American group of people. Um, and I know, I know some about, like, there's like a pretty prominent, like, Italian anti-defamation league that hates the amount of Hollywood films made about the mafia mm. and thinking about how these projects of racialization are done. And this movie being an example of Italian people being depicted in a way that I think maybe contributes to. It's such a their, caricature. Their, like, othering. It, yeah. I felt like it was just like everything I was trying to describe the movie. And I said, other than Anthony Quinn, who's the main character, everybody else, as far as I could tell, is an Italian actor. And I said, and they're still doing this like impersonation of what we think an Italian person talks like. There's all this like hand gesturing and yelling. There's just like so much yelling in the movie. Like no one has a conversation at a normal volume. And the, I won't call them romance scenes. The sex scenes are just (laughs) terrible. The men are just so gross. They're just like taking ownership of these women. And it's just disgusting. There's definitely an othering, I think, for right. sure. And like, uh, look at those people over there doing these, you know, weird things. It's, okay, I just Googled Anthony Quinn. I didn't, I don't know Anthony Quinn well. But interestingly, he's a Mexican-American actor. So casting yeah. someone of Latinx heritage to play an Italian, you know, distinctly non-white. Act. And there's a lot of layers to that. But then, because the Germans, the Aryan race, is sort of coming in here as the villain. So there's this interesting clear there are racial undertones if not overtones going on what's to what's happening in this movie yeah so the only other thing i wanted to mention was that i picked this movie because i really wanted to see a movie about winemaking that was what i was hoping was gonna (laughs) get shown or at least the vineyards or at least that you know yes the town really cares about the wine and that's true and i think that that is something that is good about the movie. But I really was expecting to kind of see more of the people who make the wine. And like I said at the beginning, that it doesn't come out until hour two, why they even have all this wine. And there's no talk of the actual wine. I wanted it to be more romantic about winemaking and wine than it was. I know going into this, like, oh, how much of this movie going to be about wine? They're drinking wine, like the first scene, like or the first frame is, you know, old men drinking wine. I'm like, oh, and so it is that. I think it's a lot about just like how much wine is part of daily life in Italy in these small Italian towns, which was cute. And again, it is a 
it's a beautiful movie. And I think having it on in the background isn't the worst thing. There were times then where I was like, why are they screaming right now? <laughs> yeah. Was, like, there's some dramatic shifts in tone and then silence mode. Like, yeah, I mean, but not I think you could make bolognese and ha- open oh, yeah. a bottle of Italian red and have this on, maybe not be totally paying attention to it and have a really fun time. Yeah. Right. Before we wrap up, Andy, the last two weeks we've talked about movies that are kind of tangentially related to wine, or maybe we have taken the conversation in a direction that is not specifically wine related. Mm-hmm. What are we watching for our season finale next week, Andy? It is the wine movie to end all wine movies. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sideways. Alexander Payne is the director and Paul Giamatti and, oh man, Thomas Hayden Church. What is his name? Yep. And Sandra Oh Um, and Virginia Madsen. It is a classic and divisive. I've only seen it once. I just watched it a few years ago. I love it. Or I really like it, at least. Molly. We'll save it for next week. We'll just save it Mm -hmm. for next week. Let's just say I haven't seen it since I saw it the first time and that was when it came out so i'm excited there let's put a nightcap on this right time for our nightcap molly came up with a question for this week so i'll let molly ask it so andy if we were casting table wine the movie and we had to pick people to play ourselves who would you pick to play you and me I have to pick both of us? Yeah. Oh. Okay, I have me, even though it's kind of dated. It gets okay. more dated all the time. Go for it. Um, But the person that I feel like resonates most with me and who I think could portray me in a movie, a biopic about my life. <laughs> it wouldn't work necessarily age-wise, but Mike Myers. <laughs> I just adore Austin <laughs> Powers and him as an actor. And he's done some serious work lately, like little cameos. And I think he has the chops to do anything. And so Mike Myers is my choice. I love him. There's no (laughs) chance that I would have ever picked that. Never in a million years would I have said that you you would be played by Mike Myers. I love that so much. Good. Good. I think I have a strong choice for you. And I know you have strong feelings about. It's okay. You can say it. Wait. Okay. No, I think you need to say who you think you should be. And then I'll tell you who I'm choosing. Okay. Fine. I and I have I have the person. Okay. I'm afraid it'll I don't know, for some Are you afraid it's gonna like, upset me? Yeah, I don't know why. I think this person's amazing. Is it gonna piss me off? Um, okay. So in the Table Wine movie, I think I would be played by Amy Adams. Oh yeah. I feel like we look similar enough and she can do like regular woman. A la Julia and Julia. She can do the regular thing. She doesn't always look like a movie star. Because I sure don't look like a movie star. So I think that she could play me in a movie of myself. So that's my answer. What's I do your, like that. What's okay. your answer for me? Uh, you know, I'm not even sure what I've seen this actor in lately. But it's the person that came to mind. And it is Michelle Williams. I think if oh. there's the likeness. I just I think Michelle Williams though could do. Oh, I a love very her, but job. I feel like I'm not I'm happier than she, I feel like Michelle Williams is always so sad. Yeah, but isn't she? I don't know. She's a dynamic actor. She's like, wonderful. Like, she's absolutely wonderful. I would be honored to be played by Michelle Williams. I think she's amazing. 
recently I've had people tell me that I look like Scarlett Johansson. Oh. And I don't even know what to do with that information. It's like compliment overload. Like I'm like, uh, uh, I don't think I look like Scarlett Johansson. Thank you. Oh, that's, I mean, take it. Black Widow. I I think I I see it. I think I, yeah. Thank you. I did used to get when my hair was shorter at Sheeran. Oh, that makes sense to me. Every day people thought I was Ed Sheeran and I actually thought I was Ed Sheeran because there's like no redheads in South Africa. Oh, (laughs) yes. But I had people take pictures with me and that was fun. I don't know if he, I don't think he axed, so I can't pick him. But on pure likeness. Yeah. Physical. I think he would be the one. Now I have to answer for you, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but I am thinking specifically of forgetting Sarah Marshall. And I feel like Jason Siegel could do a really great Andy. I'll take it. He's tall. I, he's handsome. He's, I just feel like he's got like a really fun, unique vibe about it. him that I'm going to give. I, I think that he could play a good you. So let's say thank you for listening. Molly, what a nice time. And how much fun we'll have editing this to something coherent. <laughs> it's always a delight, Andy. Chin chin. Chin chin, Andy. The Table Wine Podcast is brought to you by me, Andy Stoiber, and Molly Moran. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Craig Ely of Fieldnoise.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Table Wine Shop. Tune in next week for our season finale. We'll be discussing the movie Sideways. Thanks for listening. Hope you tune in again soon.